my name is Sarah Bentley Pearson, and I am excited to share my podcast, which features wonderful talent that I've been so lucky to discover in the Southeast. This was born out of a list that I created in 2015 called Sarah's List, and through my work in real estate, which I've been doing since 2005, and styling work, and just my personal life and my personal interests, I've been able to meet so many wonderful people, and I'm excited to share them with you. so excited about this interview. It really meant a lot to me considering I have teenagers in my life and all the struggles that they're going through today. Dr. Weston Robbins is the founder of Eternal Strength in Alpharetta, Georgia, which is about 20 or 30 minutes from my office. He sat down with me and just shared his personal story, shared his vision, shared his heart, and I loved hearing about his facility and why he did it. And I think anybody out there who has kids or is thinking about kids will really enjoy this interview. He's amazing, and I felt very touched to be with this human. Enjoy. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Weston Robbins of um, Eternal Strength. Is it facility or Eternal Strength? Treatment Center. Now we're using Eternal Strength Center for Radical Youth Work. Okay, I've Eternal went, Strength is probably the safest. Okay. Well, when reading <laughs> through um, your literature, I, I came across the word radical a lot. And I wanted to know from you, like, what that exactly means. Is it because by the time a child or a teen gets to you, they need something radical? The term radical youth work developed, mainly there's been a lot of research on it. Primarily the most research has been from Dr. Hans Scott Meyer and Dr. Kathy Scott Meyer. They were my dissertation committee for my PhD. Mm -hmm. And if you look up radical youth work, they've done the most extensive research mm -hmm. on radical youth work. The way that we define it is a mutual liberation. So this idea of youth worker joining with youth in unison to simultaneously heal together. So kind a youth and a, a youth together? A youth and a youth worker. Okay. Okay. Yep. Okay. So our mentors, our therapists, it's about flattening this hierarchy that oftentimes occurs in mental health. You'll get the clinician or the professional or the therapist up here analyzing and dissecting and teaching the youth and the way that we do the work that makes it radical is we're joining with that youth and we're learning together. It's co-collaborative, a mutual liberation. So there's many ways to define radical youth work, but that's kind of how we look at it is really giving youth a voice, valuing them and wanting them to bring their own heart to their therapeutic work. Instead of us saying, here's what you need to be doing. This is what it should look like. It's asking them, how do you want to do your therapeutic healing? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I, um, I'm a mother of one son who's 16, and then I'm a mother, or stepmother rather, of four other children. And um, I raised my son as a single mom from probably age two or three. He, he has a father, of course, but I, you know, it was the two Primarily, of us in a household. Yeah. 
And um, we uh, were always extremely close. And it, you know, single, um, only children, you know, kind of have more of an adult voice <laughs> a lot of times. And, and we, you know, I never had any issues at all with him uh, until he turned 15. And then obviously the peers become more important. And I found myself sort of like you're saying, like I'm up here, he's down here, you know, and it's a constant struggle of them thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. You're sort of a dinosaur. And me sort of saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're a kid. And then the disconnect really begins to happen. And I'm somebody who loves to learn and figure out what I'm doing wrong. And I read Parenting with Love and Logic when he was little. And then Conscious Parenting. So you had, yeah. um, what is that doctor's name? Dr. Shafali. Uh, you had her on your yeah. podcast, which was on YouTube. And, you know, I love how she says that, you know, the child is here to teach you. Yeah. And I really respect that because I think this this narcissistic sort of attitude that parents can get, it probably comes more from fear or, you know, we have the wisdom or we've made lots of mistakes and we don't want them to make the same mistakes. Right. But really listening to them, if I think actually if they do something wrong, they know they've done something wrong and listening to what they have to say right, about right. it. Right, right. And and when you describe Sarah, um, your child being your teacher, I think certain people will be like, "Does that mean I should wake up every day and just like, what do we need to do today?" Almost like in service of, I don't see it as I don't see conscious parenting as a child centric serving to the kid, but it's more of looking at what is this journey of growth in this child bringing up for you internally mm. and how can your child and whatever whatever's going on in their growth and development how can it be an invitation for you to look deeper into your heart your soul your pain your anxiety your fear and work on yourself and if you work on Bingo. yourself yeah. you can help your child it's one of the best ways you ever could well, and I'm an Al-Anon, and everybody who goes into Al-Anon is sort of walking in thinking, if I fix this other person or if I fix right. this situation, I'll be okay. And then it's not very long that you're learning, like, you have to work on right. you. And if you don't work on you, nothing changes. Right. And that's that's a hard lesson. I think it's hard for most parents. I'm, I'm curious, like, you know... <sighs> From you being around youth, well, I want to hear about you and your story and how you got here. Was your childhood hard? No. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about, gosh, I go off on such tangents. I had a beautiful childhood. I really did. My mom is incredible. Um, she's the executive director of Safe Path Children's Advocacy Center in Cobb County, and she's got her master's in behavioral analysis. My dad introduced me to music, took me to my first concert when I was in eighth grade to see the Rolling Stones. I fell in love with music. He took me to every concert I ever wanted to go to. We moved around some. I was born in Iowa, and then we moved Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, finally to Georgia when I was about 12. And I really had these incredible parents 
that let me follow my truth, my passion, whether it was guitar or music, I was awful at sports. So I, I played for like, uh, I played basketball for a little bit, scored once, scored for the wrong team. We still made the state championship and there I was a super chubby kid, like holding the state championship thing. I was like, we made it, <laughs> but I actually hurt the team. Then I was on the golf team for two weeks. I didn't have what I would describe as a hard childhood. I went through growth and development. I had a loving, supportive family. And then 17 to 23 were really rough years for me. And I think that had a lot to do with my impulsive nature, curiosity, heavy risk-taking, experimentation, sensation-seeking. What does I, that mean, sensation um, I was an adrenaline seeker. So when I would get with my friends, it was what does the day entail? It's full of potentiality. We could do whatever. Let's just go explore the world. And so with that came a lot of risk-taking. Um, I can remember I had this one friend, Scott. Shout out to Scott. I won't say his last name. But when we got together, we were like on fire. In the best way from a con connective place as these young dudes, but we'd go steal clothes, wreak havoc, um, steal. I remember we, I lived in Powder Springs, Georgia growing up, and there was the Welcome to Powder Springs sign. I stole that with all my friends, put it in the garage. My mom was like, what the f are you doing like this? And I was like, it's all good. And then we stole it so often that they finally built a big, like, brick one that you couldn't steal. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, it's community work. See? By me stealing the sign repeatedly, we've advanced the community to get a better sign. But um, I really think it was I was seeking. I can see it now as seeking, wanting to get high in a spiritual manner, wanting to touch something beyond the material, beyond the mundane beyond the superficiality of life. I felt very disillusioned when I looked at the world and I looked at adults. It didn't seem exciting. Nobody was doing what they really loved and cared about. Everything revolved around economics and money and material gain and fame and adulation and power. And so I think there was a part of me that was seeking true connection. But in that pursuit, um, came drug use. Mm -hmm. And drug use was a curiosity, something that I never thought I'd delve into. I mean, I grew up in the just say no era, and they'd bring all the drugs out to the schools and show us how horrific they were and videos, and we'd do just say no posters, crack is whack, all this stuff. And so I remember coming home and saying to my mom in eighth grade, or maybe even younger, like, I'm worried the drugs are going to get me. And she was like, you don't have to be worried at all. Like you, the only way they get you is if you go use them. And I'm like, who would ever do that? I couldn't fathom it as a young child. But fast forward to 17, um, I became curious about marijuana. I had some friends that I really idolized. When I was 17, I started working at a CD shop, music store. Um, and my friends were probably in their early 20s. And I thought they were the coolest. And little did I know they were struggling themselves, but I idolized them, wanted to grow up, wanted to be on my own, 
and so got introduced to marijuana, fell in love with marijuana, had a um, seven-year-long love affair with cannabis. And I don't, I say this very clearly, I do not think that marijuana is evil or the devil's plant, nor do I think it's the healing of the nation. I think it's a plant. I think it shifts consciousness. And some people may have a healthy relationship with it, regulated, and others may have a very abusive, codependent, daily, enmeshed relationship. I was that. That escalated to curiosity around cocaine, methamphetamine, simply from a place of like, man, I can't believe that this small little white substance is doing so much for people and the people that I'm around that are doing it aren't homeless. They're not junkies. Their lives aren't falling apart. They're actually yet. pretty- Yet. Yet. They're actually pretty unique, creative, exploratory, risk takers, music, art, creativity. And then everything I idolized in music was a romanticization of drug use and exploration. Well, you look like a rock star. I okay, mean, you thank know, you. With your tattoos <laughs> and everything. I was at the mall once, and somebody thought I was posting online. It was yeah. a while back when I had long hair. Well, I think they're, you know, I think, um, you know, Tony Robbins talks a lot about how we're all looking for significance. And, you know, yeah. tattooing yourself or looking different. That's that's how one is looking for significance. And, and, and I think that I think that drugs go with that. You know, it's this feeling of like stepping out of the mundane. I I definitely understand that. I'm a child of alcoholics, and um, my father did drugs, um, not excessively. He drank it pretty excessively. He was a binger. But somehow, when my dad got sober in his 40s, and I was like maybe 20 or something like that, that you know, I just doing my amends. In step 10, and I wrote my father, who I'm estranged from, a letter, but talking about the importance of watching him get sober mm. and what that did for me, um, which was a huge gift. But it's it's interesting, you know, like loving to do drugs, loving to smoke pot, but do, doing this and that. Um, it's all fun at the beginning, as you can see, but most yeah. people who are doing it on any regularity, their lives begin to fall apart. I mean, I don't. I don't know of anybody in my age group that even drinks excessively. But yeah. those that's not who I surround myself right, with. Right. And and I, I but it but it is hard when somebody is a teenager. Um I wanted to ask you if, about the experiences that you were going through and the edge chasing and looking for all that. Do you think that also had to do with hormones? Yes. I mean, I definitely think that's, that is an element um, in terms of, I would say, biochemistry, neurology, and the endocrine system and hormonal growth. All of it's happening, and it's happening rapidly. And so we call 12 to 25 the radical pilgrimage of growth because no matter what, the accelerated growth on all of those levels is happening. And it's happening far more than it is when you're older. And so I'll sit in rooms with young people and tell them that. Like, you're on a journey. Uh, yeah, I'm going to grow. You know, I'm 41. I'm going to grow over the next 10 years. But the growth that you are going to have on all those different arenas, 
biologically, psychologically, socioculturally, environmentally is, is rapid. You're on this pilgrimage. And so who is on that with you and do you have an awareness of it? And so I can see all the variables. When I study addiction and I look at it, my work is called the hand of addiction. And I look at the hand as having these five separate entities, or at least we believe the fingers are separate, but they're not necessarily separate. They're all intertwined and connected. And so typically when you look at addiction, it's going to get compartmentalized into one explanation. And it's either going to be the biomedical, the psychological, the sociocultural, the developmental, or the spiritual. And each one of those arenas will attempt to define addiction and say, this is what addiction is. This is where it derives from. And this is how we treat it. And I feel like the field of addiction study is missing the complexity and the nuance of how all of those things interact with one another and are in relationship continually. So yes, that biological hormonal growth is happening, but I'm also very curious about what was going on, not only in my own life, but in the youth that we work with, what are they telling themselves about themselves psychologically? What's their narrative and their story about self? Who's their friend group? What are they influenced by? All of those things are happening in conjunction with hormonal growth and these physiological aspects of growth and development. Does that all make sense? Sort of. I find I find the whole subject very complex, and I, I think it's very interesting or um, you have a lot of courage to go into something that is, you know, the failure rate is high of, of these treatments. Um, you know, uh, I would think with youth also, let's say it's a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old, and the parents are desperate and they're doing everything they can to get their, their kid on what they perceive as a straight path. But if that kid doesn't want it, you know, you don't know what, what you're putting in. You don't know that at 15 years down the road, yeah, that, that helped me a little bit. Right, right. But for, for it to actually, like, get it to really turn around is very hard. And there mm -hmm. are all these facilities mm -hmm. um, out there that treat these at-risk youth. And, um, you know... Obviously, it, I, what I find interesting about young people, um, let's take my, my son, for example. He's a good kid. I mean, he, you know, he's, he's not done anything, you know, out of the ordinary. He's, you know, just a pretty run-of-the-mill private school buckhead kid. But they get the weird haircuts. <laughs> you know? You mean like the mullets? Yeah, yeah. Now? he's yeah. got like this mullet that like, there was somebody put something on Instagram that was like a, oh, the, a halo of the bananas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, going that. like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, and, and the- They the, came out of nowhere. They came out of All nowhere. All of a sudden in my in my office before I had the center, like every young dude had a mullet. I was like, what's up, man? Yeah. He's like, everybody on the lacrosse team's got these Yeah, mullets. it's like, like yeah, right. exactly. You know, and they were like good kids with these crazy haircuts. And the book I, I read, Parenting with Love and Logic, said, you know, ignore the haircut. The haircut means nothing. Yeah. But um, 
you know, I have a stepson who is treat in a treatment center, his third treatment center. And um, he came back from the last one and he looked good. He was going to the gym. Um, he has such a cute face and he, um, he was clinging to um, spirituality, which I, I loved. And in, at that time, he was kind of like being a little bit of a, a good big brother mm. to, to my son. But um, he went to live with his mother and um, was doing well while they were homeschooling him. But as soon as he went into the public school, he gravitated to the kids that obviously feel like how he feels mm -hmm. on the inside. We as parents are like, oh, they're hanging out with bad kids. No, your kid is the same. Right. It's right. not, I mean, it's just, I guess what I'm trying to say is that as adults, we can mask our illness mm. much better than teenagers. Teenagers, it's like, it's so written all over them in their appearance mm. and their their friends and their behavior and their sleep patterns. And I, I wanted to ask you, in working with, with young people, I'd love to hear, you know, one or two of your success stories, because I'm sure they're kids that have been hard and you, you haven't been able to get to, but the ones that you have been able to get to, what... What was it that they came in with? What did they leave with? And and how are they doing now? Just what, you know, you can put it in your own words, but I love to hear about the positive because it gives parents hope. Yeah. Wow. Um, Sarah, I have so many. I'm, so forgive me because I'm very opinionated. And so I want to back into, there's a couple of things that you said that I think it's important to acknowledge. One I don't view us, you could call us a treatment center, but we don't have an agenda. And I think I, I'm very, very opinionated about the mental health industry and these programs that you talk about. And what you get in the mental health industry is you get programs that call themselves either primary addiction, secondary mental health, or primary mental health, secondary addiction. And they use a term called dual diagnoses, where they'll work with both. Um, I don't see any of our youth as good or bad. I see them all on a journey. I see beautiful, unique human souls moving through life with a myriad of different challenges. And we view the work that we do as creating and carving sacred space to be with them, connect with them, and offer respite, guidance, and influence. Um, I consider every youth I've ever worked with a success case. I consider every youth that's ever come through the center a success. Now, you could break that down and you could look at it, but most of the time parents are fixated on the behavioral. If my kid is doing these unhealthy behaviors, they need to be fixed and we got to solve it and we got to get them to do these healthy behaviors. There's many places that can do that for a particular amount of time wilderness programs, residential treatment centers, therapeutic boarding schools. But what really happened for the youth? And are they integrating what they learned and carrying it with them throughout? A success for me is true knowledge of self and creating a life that you actually want to live and moving towards that in a healthy way. And so I think if we got caught up in trying to, I think one of the biggest 
counterproductive ways that therapeutic work is done is it tries to do that and it actually convinces itself it can. Any program that tells you it can fix your child, it can change behavior, it can solve or um, cure a particular mental health challenge is full of shit. It's like step one, baby. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and I, I understand that, but what do you as a parent do if, you know, there's all varying degrees of, of kids making mistakes. One kid could just be getting bad grades and, you know, maybe uh, smoking right. pot or whatever, but the other kid could be like breaking the law or into drugs that are really pretty scary or trying to commit suicide. I mean, obviously parents don't, they don't, I mean, they love, when you were as a parent, as you know, you have a child, like you, you feel like such a failure when mm. your child is breaking the law and so unhappy and it's written all over them, you know, what, when you say, you know, having them un understand, you're saying like when the child has more awareness of themselves or their wounds or all of those things that that behavior will begin to dissipate? I think everything, so we, we see young people as young as 10, as old as 25, and they may be struggling with anxiety, depression, substance abuse, but then also self-harm, suicidality, a slew of different mental health challenges. I think a lot of what is manifesting in the symptoms of what they're exhibiting has deeper roots in them feeling disconnected from others and disconnected from self. And so what we provide is connection. How can we true, but a real heartfelt, authentic connection? What do you actually care about? How can we see your spirit and your soul actually make you feel heard and seen and join with us because we want to learn about you? And now let's dive into whatever brings you joy in your life. What music is that? Let's go look at the TikToks you're looking at. Let's go explore music, art, creativity, expression, dance, poetry. We got to find something that locks you on to create a will to live. And I think when you get that with a young person, many of those other symptoms begin to dissipate. But traditional clinical psychotherapy and psychology will sit with young people and say, Where's your anxiety on a scale of one to 10? When's the last time that you self-harm? What are your suicidal thoughts? And after working with countless young people that were like, that person really doesn't care about me. I'm gonna tell them whatever they wanna hear. Right. And I'm really not gonna tune in. I think we curate a space where they can actually be honest and really start to open up. But that only happens when you really believe somebody. And you also believe that you have the freedom to do whatever you want with your life. So we're not... Ex controlling exactly exactly because so many parents are so narcissistic that they want their child either to be like them or yep. do the things that they weren't able to be successful mm -hmm. doing if they're not doing what that parent deems as valuable yep. then that child isn't valuable and it's so narcissistic yep. it's it's gross and, you know, I remember when uh, Pearson was young and he went to preschool and they said, well, what are your hopes and dreams for your son? And I said, 
that he likes himself. Cool. And that he's a good person. Yeah. Like he was very into basketball for many, many years. And we did, you know, all the programs for for all year long. And and I enjoyed it because I see I saw that he was really enjoying right, right. it. But um I never you know, I was always sort of like before he was born, like excited, like what's he gonna be like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and I I I see it happening all the time with parents that they're just driving and pushing and pushing and pushing. And sometimes when a kid has a talent, sometimes they need the push too. Like I right. do know that Pearson had a coach uh, that uh, wrote the book I Am D One. And he's a great guy, um, Chris Meadows. I'm going to have him on the show. He's awesome. that one of the head coaches or uh, one of the girls' coaches up in um, in Boston. And, um, you know, he had his daughter who went to Georgetown for basketball up at 5 in the morning and practicing. And, and she, and she um, did well because of that. So it's, it's always a balance of, like, yeah, yeah. wondering how much – do you push and and then but if the child's pushing back, I think it's important to hear hear from them. Hey, why are you pushing back? And get in their head. And um, the seven habits of highly effective mm-hmm. people. I'm reading that now, and it's talking about empathetic listening. Mm. And sometimes, if you just let the kid feel like they have room to talk, they may still be kind of aligned with you. Yeah. But if you're pushing, 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 right. they're gonna push back. Yeah. And and I, I think it's beautiful what I'm hearing you say because it's really about bringing out the authentic self. And I, I have a few questions in regard to the profile of kids that you feel that you see. And there may not really be a profile at all, but um, do you find, because it doesn't sound like from your upbringing and you dabbling in drugs and all of that, that that your parents exposed you to drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. So, but do you see a lot of links between um, addicts having children and their children becoming addicts? Mm. Um, some, but not necessarily. More, more of what you describe. And I want to go back to what you said with, I think, being a parent is one of the hardest journeys that you could ever maneuver in your entire life. Having a child, and you know this, it's like having your heart ripped out of your chest and you have to watch it walk through the world. And everything it feels, you feel simultaneously. So all those, I have deep amounts of empathy for parents who they themselves in their own childhood, in their own growth and development, in their own adulthood, maybe had to let go of particular dreams, pursue certain things, all these variables of responsibility, independence, autonomy, what is my life, who am I? They arrive at a place where maybe they themselves aren't really happy, and the child then becomes all of their time, all of their energy. Let me do it right again vicariously through my child. And that's where I feel like that individual depth work on self for a parent. If you can start to look at what's my relationship with anxiety? What's my relationship with success? What's my relationship with identity? How do I define myself? As you do that depth work, the clarity that you're going to have when you look at your child 
is going to begin to kind of gently sweep away the projection. Mm -hmm. But if you're not doing that and you're an unconscious parent, then your child, you can't even see your child. All you're doing is projecting particular fears, anxieties, desires on their growth and development. And I have a lot of empathy for that because it makes sense. You don't want your child to feel pain. But so much of what they experience as they move through the world is pain, and pain can be transformative. And resiliency, I would choose all day over happiness because the most resilient individuals I see are the ones that have curated the most happiness and joy in their life. So when people say, I just want to have a happy kid, I just want my kid to be happy, I want my kid to be resilient and holistic and seeking and to know themselves because you find that starts to curate happiness rather than just going directly at it. Well, it's the steam building. Yes. You know, my husband and I talk about all this because he was raising four kids on his own when we met, and I had Pearson. And I was raised with a mom who was pretty hard on us. I mean, she was actually really tough. Um, she's passed since. But, you know, when I think back at her, um, she pushed us really to do it on our own. And she would, she would, she would withhold what many parents would be like, oh, what's the big deal? Give them the money for this and that. But she was just adamant that we would have that grit. And so I've had many discussions with my husband around this, and they've, they've been struggling conversations because he, he, to soothe his anxiety, he wants to make things easier for them. Right, right. And I see it all the time. Like, if I just give them this, I, right. I can get back to work and I can feel okay right. about myself. And when you have four and you're doing it on your own, you oh, understand. Yeah. You just want them to function and yeah. eat and whatever. But what happens is, is that child or that young adult has such low self-esteem that they don't know how to do it on their own. And I know when I got divorced was a very transformative experience for me. It was a very sad time, but I was a dependent wife. You know, I was a 1950s wife for many, many, um, just just like a lot of women are. But when I began to do for myself and work harder, I began to like myself more. And I think that's, that's the thing with, with being a parent that that is hard because especially if you didn't grow up with a lot of means you're like oh I want my kid to have the thing oh, I yeah. didn't have absolutely I, you know oh I want you know for me my mistake is like my mom wasn't very nurturing and I'm like oh let me spread the the butter <laughs> on your toast for you let me yeah let me yeah. uh do for you that you could do for yourself so right. in Al-Anon they say it one of the worst things you can do for an addict or a spouse or your child is to do for something, something for somebody else that they should do for themselves. Right. To and, disempower them. But but it's a constant easing as parents, easing our anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it is so hard. And that's why I was so excited to talk to you because, you know, now that I have a 16-year-old, our job is actually to be like getting ourselves out of a job. Right, right. Right. Making them, you know, know how to pay the bills, know how to right. do their taxes, you know, forget about what they decide. You know, it's right. It's hard also. But self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. And Sarah, what you said is beautiful because you went through an awareness exercise. You're like, I can see all of the ways 
that my fear and my anxiety makes me, I can even see from my own relationship with my mom from my childhood that I'm doing this and I don't think it's about being a perfect parent. There's a beautiful developmental psychologist named Donald Winnicott and he says it's about being a good enough parent, a stable, showing up, being conscious, having awareness and being real and, and letting your child walk on that journey and doing whatever you can to enable the healthy behaviors and to not enable the unhealthy behaviors. And I think, you know, back to the profile of who we see, it's, I, I don't consider the families that we serve our patients, that's our community. I love these parents, I love these youth. We are grateful to walk alongside them, to join with their family, to understand who they are, what they've been through, where they're moving, what they want, it's true relational work. It's not about we have the answer and we're going to fix your family. It's we can hold sacred space and show up and walk this journey with you. And we can support the parents and support the young person. But I, I get really frustrated with the mental health industry not looking at things in a nuanced and complex way enough. When you look at a family... That family is embedded in a lineage, in a culture, in relationships, in ecology, and, and you need to understand all of those variables and have an awareness rather than saying, oh, this family needs to do our treatment program and it needs to go through these steps. We want to understand the heart and soul of that family, where it, they're at exactly, and join with them to understand what level of support that they need and try and foster that. And so the profile's so different. I mean, we have really affluent families that are juggling a lot. We have blended families. We have a lot of young people that have been adopted. We have a wide demographic. We work with a lot of um, trans youth and non-binary kids. Um, we work with a ton of kids that have addiction issues who pa parents never did. Um, other parents who are in long-term recovery and kids have never had any addiction whatsoever. And so again, we're not trying to diagnose and dissect. And look, I can do that with the best of them, man. You put me at a table with a psychiatrist, a clinical neuropsychologist, and we start to talk about the DSM and diagnoses and clusters of symptoms. I can do all that, but it's very, very important to understand what's going on with all of those other variables, not just the psychology. And then one of my favorite quotes is the most powerful force in the human psyche is how you define yourself to yourself. I want to know what that kid is telling themselves about who they are, about the world, and about what they're capable of. Because that internal belief system, no matter what they're maneuvering, is going to be the most important thing. And same thing for the parents. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, I find raising teens and when you're in an academic environment, um, you know, you're constantly judged by your grade and all of that. But you, as you and I both know that when you get out to the world and, and people become adults, the ones that are really doing well financially and running companies can be really pretty disturbed humans yeah. that were, um, hate themselves, but that hating of themselves gave them the the discipline 
to or the fear or whatever it right. was to push and push and push and push and push. But it doesn't make them, um, uh, you know, healthy, balanced humans. Right. And so that stage, like you're talking about between age 10 and 25, all of that in there, you know, it, we can't look at a 15 or a 16 year old and say they're they're not going to make it in this world because we really don't know. But really, um, you know, I'm 53, so I'm at that stage where I'm very cognizant of time is is, is picking up pace. And like, you know, you feel like you're going to bed and you just got up to brush your teeth and yeah, things are yeah. moving really quickly. And what do I want for my my lifetime? And And I think to have a child actually feel and know to their core that they they are perfect just how they are is profound because yeah. I, and 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 I think you're right in saying that when you really go to that work um you know the drugs don't seem as appealing um right. that breaking the law or whatever you just it's so I know I understand that a parent feels desperate. Like if I, if I don't do something, they will end up in jail. And da 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 da. They've done this and this and this and this. And I've got to do something. Right. And there's like. And I'm not saying parents shouldn't do something. Yeah. It's just um, instead of attacking it directly, let's look at the variables that actually create health. It's when you're embedded in community, when you have passion and purpose when you found something meaningful in your life. So what are the things that you need to do to foster all of those um, auxiliary supports around your child? And there may be times, you know, I can, I can see all the different families I've worked with. There may be times where there is such urgency and extreme situations going on that a psychiatric facility or hospital is needed, hospitalization, stabilization, um, or a residential program. I'm not saying that those things shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. I just see the ones that do the best work are really looking at family systems and they're doing more of that holistic work instead of a treatment program um, lying to you and taking advantage of very desperate parents and saying, sure, we got the cure. We have a 96.7% success rate in all of the children we serve. And then you watch families go spend upwards of $300,000 oh, yeah. on a continuum of therapeutic care and the young person still struggles. And so I like the programs that say, here's who we are, here's what we know we do well, and here's what we can work on your family with, but this is gonna be a journey and you guys are gonna have to take this work, continue to practice it and integrate it into your lives. And that will be the most successful thing you can do to reground in relationship as a family system and for everybody in the family to start doing their own holistic yes, work. Yes. Yes. In any relationship, not yep. just like, you know, mother, father, child, but adult to adult, both doing the work, yep. both looking inward, both analyzing their broken parts and at least taking a look at them yep. and, and doing, there's no way to, for the kid to be wrong right. and then have parents that aren't working on themselves. Yep. Like it's just idiotic to me. And I know a lot of these treatment facilities or like bring the parents in for the last few days to work on themselves. Right, and then right. the parents go back to being their same old right. selves. And then the kid is lost in that. Yep. And then the kid acts out. Cause like we talked about before, 
the kid starts really showing it in their appearance in a yeah, way yeah. that an adult doesn't. Right. Because an adult has figured out if I look this way, if I look like Post Malone, I'm a, I'm a rocker. <laughs> if I look like Gwyneth Paltrow. And, right, and, and, right. You know, and we identify, we begin to like pull identities, but it isn't necessarily what's going on. Right. On the and I think for adults, there's a willingness to dive in and at least do that work head on. Mm-hmm. Whereas for youth, I don't think that youth don't want to do therapy. I just think they're ready to do it in a way that looks drastically different than it ever has. Well, and I think it's done yeah, in and community. And that to your facility. You yeah. know, I, I, I've looked at your facility. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I try not to do the Joe Rogan three-hour <laughs> interviews because people don't have a lot of time to listen to things. But um, I, you know... I believe in your soul. Like I can feel your soul. Cool. And I can feel your warmth and I can feel your Don't passion. make me cry. Don't do <laughs> no, it, Sarah. Like this is, this is my life's I care work. Yeah. A lot about personal growth. I care yeah. a lot about trying to do better. Yeah. I'm definitely the type of person that feels like I was born broken. And so I'm constantly and that comes from just my parents, how they projected their own insecurities right. on You can me. see that, but there's still that part of but you that like But there's still that, that little it. part yeah. in me. So I'm constantly curious about growth. And I, I feel like you're doing such beautiful work. Thank God for people like you. Um, why don't you just um, tell our audience how they can find you? And um, if somebody uh, doesn't necessarily need your services but wants to donate to to what you're doing, I'm sure you take donations. Absolutely. You're always looking for donations. That, because when you help the youth, you help our community. Yeah. So um, cool. please tell us. Let me give you this first. This <laughs> says, you are eternal strength. And I'll do the whole tagline with you. You're not broken. You're not sick. You're not damaged. You are eternal strength. And I believe that. Um so we, um, you can find us at eternalstrength.com. You know, I always like all those dudes, like uh, in interviews that would just be like super weird and like not, not even answer that. They'd be like, I don't know. They'd be like, what are you doing next? And they'd be like, whatever. <laughs> and I'd be like, that guy's awesome. <laughs> and, then, and even when I started the you center. You have to have hundreds of millions of dollars behind yeah, you. you know like what I mean? Yeah. yeah. When I started the center, I was like, maybe we won't even have a website, man. <laughs> Maybe it'll be like a cool secret handshake and everybody's like, Wes, no, dude, we got to have a way. And I was like, I've gotten better. Um, EternalStrength.com. Cosmic Lamb is our nonprofit 501c3 leg. We scholarshiped over $93,000 in therapeutic support services to families that couldn't afford last year. We're on par to do almost 200000 this year. Every dime that gets donated to Cosmic Lamb goes directly to scholarshipping a kid and a family that can't afford therapeutic services. Mm. We don't do anything else with it. Um, So if you want to make a donation, you can go on eternalstrength.com and you'll see a tab that says the nonprofit. Click that and it's got all these options. And you're in Alpharetta. Yep. We're right behind Q Barbecue, right beside Cambridge High School. And if a family is struggling in any way, they can email me directly, drwes at eternalstrength.com or support at eternalstrength.com. 
And even if they don't need any of our services, we will give that family resources and help figure out whatever direction we can push them in to get help. And so it could be national across the country. I've had moms and dads reach out to me and say, could you hop on a Zoom with my son? Could you help us get resources in the state that we live in? I know every different IOP, intensive outpatient, PHP, psychiatric hospital, residential, therapeutic boarding school. We will guide your family and help you get resources and help with whatever is going on. So don't hesitate to reach out with any questions about anything. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah. I, this this really is awesome. been a pleasure. Sarah, you're awesome. This is great. I'm excited and grateful. Okay. Thank you. So I'm super psyched about my sponsor for the podcast. She's a great friend of mine and also a previous guest. Her name is Lisa Stein. Her work is stunning. We all layer it and wear it all the time. It's great jewelry to wear day to night. I barely go a day without it, and I think you would too once you start collecting it. She's been so nice to give all of my listeners a discount. When you go to lastein.com, you put in Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, 15, and you will get a discount. Just put 